You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. On October 23rd, 2016, we attempted our first-ever live Monster Talk event. We were joined by Eugenie Scott, Brian Regal, Daniel Loxton, myself, Blake Smith, and Karen Stolzno for a discussion of the Yeti. We use Google's YouTube Live software. This free software is undergoing a lot of changes and sometimes has problems. In this case, the live stream started late and was, according to viewers, quite choppy. The recording itself, the audio sounds fine, but it had this curious technical shortcoming of having the first six minutes start early and then cut off six minutes early. So what follows is the audio of that live recording that I was able to extract from the video. I'll be working to try to sync up the audio and video and make what actually came out available on YouTube in the near future. I hope you enjoy this discussion. It was a lot of fun to record, and we plan to try this again in the future, hopefully with fewer technical difficulties. So welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters and what Brian Regal refers to as Yeti Palooza. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. This is starting. This says we're live. Yeah, we're so, there. congratulations. Welcome. Sweet. Uh, <laughs> boom. All right. So, we're here for the very first Monster Talk live podcast, video cast, vodcast. I don't know. Um, I'm delighted to say we've got Brian Regal with us uh, from Hello. University. Hi, Brian. Uh, Daniel Loxton from Skeptic Magazine. And, and hopefully uh, Daniel's sound will be working soon. <laughs> Let's see. I'm not sure we heard you, Daniel. And then uh, we've got Eugenie Scott, formerly of NCSC. Is that right? That's correct. Hello, everybody. 
and I can hear you now, Daniel, I believe. Uh, okay. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, perfect. And then uh, we've got Karen Schmolzno from Hi. Monster Talk. And we've got me, Blake Smith, and a uh, special guest is Brian Gregory, who is from the Virtual Skeptics. Hey, absolutely. Uh, and uh, he's going to be helping us with the audio. So, Daniel, just because we're getting some background noise, I would ask that if, uh, when you're not talking, would you mind muting your mic? Uh, okay. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Beautiful. This is going to be great. Okay. So, for this very first episode, we're going to talk about a creature that we've only talked about sort of tangentially. And hopefully I said that right. Up until now. Um, we're going to be talking about the Yeti. Um, and the reason I've got these particular folk on is because uh, we've got uh, this book uh, from Brian Regal called Searching for Sasquatch, which I'm holding up. Since this will also be a, 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 bit, a, a podcast at some point, uh, I'll just tell you what I'm doing with my hands here. I've got Abominable Science, which was written with uh, Daniel Loxon and Don Prothero. I've got Eugenie Scott's book, which is Evolution versus Creationism. Uh, her work with the NCSC uh, has been tremendous and uh, dealing with trying to keep science uh, as the core of our curriculum in schools. And uh, the novel Hits and Misses from Karen Stolzner. So, Which is all about the Yeti. Yeah, it's completely, completely top. <laughs> the Yeti love story. <laughs> so um, let's just sort of get started. Um, I know that for from, from my experience, it seems like the Yeti really sort of became a, a topic of the I guess, cultural immediacy in the 1950s. Uh, Brian Regal, your book on searching for Sasquatch talks a lot about the origins of cryptozoology. Can you give us kind of a little historical overview of how this creature, the Yeti, became so famous in uh, America and Europe? Yeah, well, um, the legend in Nepalese and Tibetan history supposedly goes back quite a ways. There's a medieval manuscript uh, from like the 14 or the 1300s with a drawing of a supposed uh, man creature. Uh, but in, in the West doesn't really get exposed to this. Around 1920, a, a British mountain climber called C.K. Howard Burry is on an expedition uh, climbing mountains in, in, in uh, Tibet. And he sees what he thinks is some strange creature off in the distance. And the he asks the Sherpa guides, you know, what is that thing? And they give him a couple of different local dialect names, which he immediately mangles when he tries to, 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 uh, to say them again. And he's so impressed by this that he sends a, a telegraph to the Calcutta statesman to say, I saw this creature. And it's called whatever, you know, he tries to recreate the name of it. And the guys at the Calcutta Statesman, they don't pronounce it correctly either. And they try to uh, translate it into English. And it eventually comes out Abominable Snowman. Ah. And so that's how it kind of hits the, the scene. There had been a few scattered Western, mostly British reports uh, from mountain climbers uh, back back into the early 19th century, but it was this, this message about an abominable snowman that really kind of gets things going. And it's a few years later that the, uh, the Loch Ness Monster begins to become well-known. And I think what really kind of kicks the, the abominable snowman into the Western public eye uh, are, the, are the Eric Shipton photographs, the famous Eric Shipton photographs. And those are footprints. I was about to say those are actually a, a footprints uh, next to an ice axe, right? Yes, and there was there were so that's the most famous one. 
is the is the single print with the ice axe next to it. But there's a couple of others. Uh, the, the probably the, the next best known one was he took a a, a, a picture of sort of a long row of these uh, footprints heading off into the distance. So those prints don't look as much like the sort of classic Bigfoot prints that become so popular in, in America. Yeah, very different. Yeah. So um, what do you think, uh, Daniel? In your book, you talked a lot about that sort of uh, early history as well. Uh, anything else you want to add to what uh, Brian said? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, well, uh, re- regarding the, the very famous print um, – that that story is quite confused. Uh, there's uh, uh, you know there's a number of conflicting accounts of, of uh, how many photographs were taken, whether there was two trackways, whether the photographs we're seeing all of them reflect the same trackway. Um, it's it's quite confusing, and there there is some suggestion as well that uh, uh, the very famous uh, print that we we see um, against the ice axe and against a boot. Uh, could have been modified uh, by Shipton himself. Actually, you know, there, there, there was some discussion about that. Um, the uh, the idea that um, probably going to need to mute again, Daniel. Sorry about that. Uh, the um, oh, perfect. I was going to say the idea that um, there was so much press related to this, uh, and that the funding for these these uh, mountain climbs seemed to become somewhat dependent on the revenue being generated uh, by these stories for the search for the Yeti. Uh, it, is that an accurate uh, statement that, 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 it, that there was sort of financial pressure to keep these stories coming in once they started? It, it is accurate. And there, there are some accounts um, uh, of, of important uh, figures in the Yeti history mountaineers uh, saying on the, you know, on the down low, uh, you know, don't make too much noise about this. This is, uh, uh, you know, it's important for us to get our get our uh, funding together, get our expeditions together. When I was uh, when I was doing research for my book in London, uh, I came across uh, this was at the um, the archives at the University College of London. I came across this little obscure article uh, in a kind of society page. Uh, where John Napier, the man who writes probably the first uh, scholarly book um, on on anomalous primates, at a party, they're talking because he knew Eric Shipton, and and Napier's wife says to the effect, uh, "Well, we know all know that's fake. Shipton fakes everything." <laughs> yeah, he apparently so had right from the start. There were there were suggestions that this was. You know, a put on. Are you saying it's bullshitting? <laughs> I think it is. Yes, <laughs> Yeti. Uh, there, there are some uh, kind of hearsay accounts uh, of, that Shipton may have uh, uh, may have improved the the print and uh, may have admitted it. Uh, Ernst Schaefer, the SS, the German SS mountaineer, uh, alleged that Shipton had. Said, you know, had had asked him personally not to uh, uh, cast too much doubt on on the print. Um, there, uh, it seems that Shipton also had something of a reputation as a as a jokester. Edmund Hillary uh, positioned him in that in those kind of terms as a someone who made pranks or told tall tales. 
So let's just get to a more basic question that I'll put to everyone. What's the Yeti supposed to be? <laughs> There's a word there for you. Um, you mean you mean to the believers or uh, to the oh, well, uh, as a creature as a what is it? Being, what, what? Yeah, how, how do we describe the Yeti? Uh, I guess is it a, a relative to, or would believers think that uh, the the Yeti is a relative to the Sasquatch and uh, the Yowie and other similar cryptids? Yeah, the, there, the there problem are. is the descriptions vary so much. Just like with all of the wild men of the woods, is it? It's ten feet tall. It's um, got. Uh, gray fur or silver or white fur. No, it's uh, got brown fur or it's really only five feet tall. Most of them, uh, most of the accounts like to have it, you know, bigger is always better when you're dealing with cryptozoology. But uh, how, how big it is, how much it weighs, what color it is, all of those things seem to be fairly flexible depending on um, uh, who you're talking to and, and, uh, uh, what they consider to be the evidence. So that's one of the problems with the with the uh, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yowie, et cetera, is, is pinning down what exactly are we looking for. Um, whatever we're looking for, now, now this is going to sort of spoil the punchline for everybody watching this, but they haven't actually found it yet. Sorry. Oh, show's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, um, Ivan Sanderson, I thought, had the best um, – approached because he was completely imperturbable uh he, he said you know there, there's you, you get all these different uh citing classifications and descriptions that just proves that there's great biological diversity amongst anomalous primates it's not just one it's a it's a whole genus of different related species Sure, and all of those places everywhere in the world where they've seen one or more of these uh, large primates that are as yet undescribed, you don't have to look very far and you'll find people who also see ghosts and see other things. I mean, you know, the whole idea that just because just because an idea is widespread, that therefore means it's true, uh, doesn't hold up very well. I mean, that, that, that's the lovely thing about about looking at these phenomena from the standpoint of folklore, because the folklorists will tell you about widespread stories. Um, some of them, like like flood myths, could have an origin that's actually true. Most early civilizations, most early cities, human beings need water, so you settle someplace where there's water. If it's a river, probably at some time in the history of the community, it's going to flood. So a lot of people independently have flood stories. And then there's also the phenomenon of diffusion, where a flood story will start in one place and diffuse to another uh, neighboring or more distant culture. And so the same stories get swapped around. That doesn't mean that the same phenomenon is actually being described everywhere. Folklorists also will tell you that the uh, versions of the Cinderella story are almost as widespread as the flood. Does that actually mean there was a real Cinderella who married the prince? Probably not, but it's a very popular motif. And the motif of the wild man of the woods is also something that shows up very widely in many cultures around the world. That doesn't necessarily mean that there are wild men of the woods running all over the place and or that they're certainly not that they're all a related form of undescribed primates.
And why do you think that is, that it, the, these stories seem to show up all around the world, similar stories? You mean about, uh, well... About about yetis and Sasquatch? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's... The idea, the idea that, that 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 the woods are scary places, that remote areas are are kind of frightening places. You could get hurt there. There's danger there. That's very common, I, and not not exactly. Uh, um, you know, even paranoids have enemies. I mean, bad things can happen to you in the wild, so <laughs> that's not an unreasonable thing to 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 believe. And it's also uh, not unusual for there to be hermits and other people out living in the uh, woods all by themselves and uh, not in every woods, obviously, but, you know, homeless people today is what we'd call them. But uh, back in uh, medieval Europe or um, other parts of the world as well, there are some people who wander off into the woods and maybe they're not you know, mentally stable, but certainly you could run into the, some of these people and they act bizarrely. And so stories arise. It's it's quite possible that stories about um, folkloric stories about wild men of the woods um, uh, could be widespread for very uh, understandable reasons. You know, one of the handicaps that we have in, uh, in the skeptics movement is we look at things scientifically. And that means that we actually look for the simplest explanation. The simplest explanation for all of these stories of yetis and yowies and uh, sasquatches and et ceteras, um, the simplest explanation is not that a huge Miocene primate, Gigantopithecus, left relict populations around the planet, um, which are all somehow related to one another and uh, have yet to be properly discovered and properly described. That's a whole lot more ifs and possibilities and low priorities than just folkloric explanations. So, you know, that's always been a curiosity to me. The the amount of bone material we actually have from Gigantopithecus, uh, last time I read up on it was some teeth and part of that's uh, it. Some jaw. teeth and jaws but yep, the models it. for them that we see i mean I, i've seen full-blown gigantic uh you know sized models uh for what people think they look like and um uh some people have that modern day forms are more most closely related to fossil forms from the same area it would be very unusual if gigantopithecus looked more like african apes but it doesn't it looks like asian apes so that's where the uh, link to uh, 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 orangutans come from. That said, the idea that orangutans are a really good model for what Gigantopithecus looked like is not a very good one because uh, Gigantopithecus was probably pretty big, uh, you know, judging from the, the jaws and teeth. You know, there are allometric relationships that you can um, uh, use to estimate how big it would be. I think. I, you know, I, I have no very good reason for saying this other than that I spent some of my uh, early academic life as a dental anthropologist, but I never studied the Gigantopithecus materials. But I think a lot of the estimates of 10 and 12 feet tall are probably bigger than it really is. But you know, I, I, can't, I can't defend that in any way. That's just a gut feeling from having looked at a lot of teeth in my life. Um, 
teeth size varies a lot um, and is not a direct one-to-one kind of relationship with body size. But, you know, setting that aside, it was probably a pretty darn good-sized uh, ape, uh, which, you know, brings up a whole lot of other questions about the adaptation and the um, uh, way of life that that creature had, that not only Gigantopithecus had, but any modern relict giant ape would have had, um, which, you know, my, my colleagues here can certainly uh, uh, deal with as well. Um, ecological factors. I know that uh, uh, Dan has written about this and the rest of you have too. So hold forth. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when, when uh, Grover Krantz did a reconstruction of Jacob. Oh, good old Grover. I love Grover. <laughs> uh, skull. He made it basically a, a oversized gorilla skull. And he did, uh, he was very interested in the, in the biometric approach to trying to reconstruct Bigfoot. And in, in his papers, I, I, I went through all the stuff uh, down at the Smithsonian, just reams and reams of mathematical calculations he did to try to figure out the bulk of one of these. And these wonderful little drawings, sketches he made, these little sort of mannequin drawings with, uh, you know, how long the limb proportions were going to be. And, you know, he put a lot of effort into it. And, and he just assumed that Gigantopithecus was uh, a very big gorilla-like biped. Well, actually, that's, that's probably not, you know, too crazy. Um, because, uh, you know, the teeth are really big. Those are humongous big molars. And generally speaking, in primates where we find that kind of uh, dentition, big molars, uh, especially relative to the anterior dentition, this is, an, this is a creature that ate a lot of foliverous kinds of, of food. Um, <laughs> hard objects or uh, a lot of vegetarian kinds of, these are not the teeth of a, of a carnivore, shall we say, maybe an omnivore, but uh, an animal for, for whom veget- uh, vegetables, um, uh, vegetation, I should say, not vegetables, that's different. Vegetation was a very big part of the, of the diet. That makes sense if it's a very large bodied primate. You know, look at gorillas. They're the biggest primate on the planet today, and their diet is almost entirely uh, uh, low calorie, high bulk kinds of foods, uh, which is why when you go to the zoo, and especially if it's a zoo that's overfeeding its gorillas, um, <laughs> you tend to find uh, big guts um, because most of the um, viscera is involved in digesting this high cellulose diet. You know, you just don't find giant primate dietary support in places like the Himalayas or the northwest coast of, of uh, uh, North America. You, you just don't find that kind of dietary possibilities. Yeah, that's a, a, it's, it almost ends up being the same sort of argument you have about Nessie, where there's just not the caloric uh, availability mm-hmm. to support the size of the animal. That, that seems to be a a good argument against, I guess, going back to the question about what is it supposed to be, though, we've got uh, some people report something that sounds like a bear. Some people report something that sounds like a primate. Um, but am I am I right in thinking that there is like, um, well, I guess maybe a better question with this would be a folklore question is 
what did the people of uh, Nepal think it is? I mean, what, what are the people uh, who live in that area think is because it seems like in their folklore and uh, mythology that the creature is is uh, more supernatural than necessarily mm-hmm. biological. It's it's a really complicated uh, complicated question that actually makes me feel quite uneasy. Um, <laughs> of, of all the major cryptids, I, I think the Yeti is the one that makes me feel the most kind of unsure uh, because it's uh, it is the most international of the mysteries. You know, we, we're um, we're talking about a creature uh, that spans several countries, a vast part of the world. Um, a number of different languages. We've got dozens of names for this thing. Uh, through uh, through that, we've got um, some implication of bears, some implication of supernatural creatures. Um, but teasing these things apart is really difficult, um, particularly for Western skeptics. Uh, you know, <laughs> sitting at a desk somewhere as I am, um, we're, we're very dependent on uh, you know uh, people who have spent a lot of time looking at. Uh, you know, m- meeting local people, talking about the beliefs, uh, talking about mountaineers and expeditions that have gone in search of the Yeti. And then those are also international. You know, we've got uh, uh, Germans and Swiss and British and Americans, uh, large expeditions by the Russians, by the Chinese. And trying to put together all those pieces to answer the deeper question, what is the Yeti? Um, it's uh, extraordinarily daunting, in, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh you know, the, the more kind of popular culture question, what is the Yeti, is uh, itself sort of complicated. Um, uh, you know, with, with cryptids, we have uh, our lumpers and our splitters for our kind of cryptozoological taxonomy. Um, there are people who believe, for example, that every major lake monster belongs to the same species across the entire planet, or that every kind of anomalous ape belongs to the same species across the entire planet. But as Jeannie pointed out earlier, um, you know, that's not what we see in the eyewitness record. We see tremendous diversity. So how are you going to deal with that? Um, do you conclude that eyewitnesses are not terribly reliable, as skeptics tend to conclude? Or do you conclude that there are dozens of species of big feet stomping about the planet, uh, all of them equally undiscovered, practically invisible. Do you think that uh, people in countries like Nepal and Tibet really believe in the Yeti today, or do you think it's more of a tongue-in-cheek thing or a tourism draw? <laughs> uh, I think it really depends uh, You know, uh, what country you're in, what sense you mean to believe, whether you're in the countryside or the city. Um, you know, it's a kind of a complex folkloric ecology of ideas. So, kind of going back to the uh, uh, sorry, yeah, thanks, Daniel. I, so kind of going back to the historical side of things. The um, the two most famous, aside from the photographic evidence, the, the two most famous sort of yeti things, the evidence for them are uh, a mummified hand and a mummified scalp. And uh, there's this uh, amazing story uh, about uh, how um, some of that material came out for us Western scientists to have a look at. Can we talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, there is a monastery in Tibet called Pangboche, and they supposedly have the story about uh, a, a yeti 
helping them build the monastery or protect the monastery. And, and they claim they had a hand, a Yeti's hand, and a Yeti's scalp that they kept as sort of religious artifacts. And in the 1950s, uh, one, of the, one of the legendary anomalous primate hunters, David Byrne, uh, winds up going there and he sees this thing and he tries to steal it. Uh, he, he managed to somehow sweet talk his way in to, to be able to get his hands on this hand. And apparently he stole a couple of fingers. He, he, he tore off a couple of fingers and replaced it uh, with modern human finger bones. Uh, but then didn't exactly tell anybody when he got back uh, to uh, Europe uh, that he had done this. And then one of the last ex- expeditions to go there, uh, the one uh, that uh, involved Edmund Hillary and and um, uh, the guy from uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, Perkins, yeah. the Hillary Perkins expedition. Marlon Perkins. Uh, they- Marlon Perkins, thank you. <laughs> they go out there and they say, okay, we want to see the hand too. So the monks bring him in um, uh, and they, they say, here's the, here's the hand. And they don't know that David Byrne had chopped some fingers off of this and had replaced it with human finger bones. And they, Marlon Perkins looks at this and he says, wait a minute, this is a human hand. It's obviously a modern human bones. So it's all fake. Uh, and that's basically what they said to the world. Uh, Perkins was very skeptical of the whole Yeti idea. Uh, there's a famous photograph of him wearing the Yeti scalp, sort of dancing around with it. Uh, that got a lot of people upset. Uh, but uh, then the hand, I, I believe the hand went and disappeared completely. So we don't know. There are photographs. There's a couple of photographs of it floating around and a couple of photographs of the, of the, of the, the skull cap. Uh, but I believe the hand is missing. And um, um, Bernard Hoovelman's the other famous pioneer cryptozoologist. He believed that the whole Yeti thing was just a misinterpretation of, of local wildlife. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness philosophy ufos ghosts or say bigfoot so who's to say that there's not alien species that are sasquatch like i've seen a ghost and i would hear something walking and breathing maybe every path is right i will accept as a premise that every path is right that is a face on mars eyes nose it kind of looked like wilson the volleyball Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. 
talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, that's a popular view, I think. Uh, that, Of course, then there's stories where, uh, you know, people have much more profound and direct interactions. But that seems to be true for, like, Bigfoot as well, where you get stories where, oh, that sounds like a bear, you know, or, oh, that sounds like, uh, you know, an animal that I recognize. And then they get kind of mixed up with stories of, uh, no, these animals have a language and they talk to me and they tell me things, that sort of thing. So uh, it's a it's a hodgepodge of stuff. But I did want when we're talking about um, removing material from those areas, uh, there's that uh, famous bit with uh, Jimmy Stewart. Can can we can we add that bit? I, I'd hate to not have our Jimmy Stewart story. So you may want to cover that. Um, it's been a while since I've looked at that, but um, yeah, the the story of how this uh, material of the hand material got uh, taken out uh, by burn uh, is is a little bit. Uh, uh, there there are some differing accounts of that. He said that he had permission; it wasn't stolen, and so on. Um, the, the material still exists. The the material that he carried out it, it was DNA tested uh, just a few years ago, uh, and uh, that was also human. So. Was it Jimmy Stewart? <laughs> uh, not that I know of. But there is there is a story about uh, that material being carried out by Jimmy Stewart's wife uh, in her right they, in, in her lingerie. Right, her lingerie. In the luggage. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's a different time. It's a different time. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. What what was Jimmy Stewart's wife carrying out? I missed a piece of this someplace. A, a piece of a Yeti's hand, a mummified Yeti's hand. The, the uh, same hand? I mean, how many hand. Yeti hands are there? <laughs> uh, <they're, laughs> I mean, I've heard about the earlier one, the Burns one. But Yeah, the, it's, that's the same one. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's apparently how it was carried out of the country. <laughs> through, through this uh, uh, connection. It sounds like a, a movie title, but Purse of the Yeti Hand, right? So, <laughs> yes. So does it seem like there are sightings today, contemporary sightings of the Yeti? Not that I'm aware of. Um, I don't think there has been a major uh, sighting. Uh, you know, there, there was the there was the material that was tested a couple years ago that turned out to be uh, an extinct version of a polar bear. Um, but I don't, I don't, I'm not sure um, – of any publicized sighting lately, um, there, there's there's a little trickle. Uh, photographs and television shows that say they found footprints, and things like that. But it's the heyday of the Yeti seems to have seems to have passed, at least in terms of uh, the cryptid that we know and love in the in the West. The Halcyon days of the Yeti. Was <laughs> it? We we do have a new series out from uh, Josh Gates. Uh, which is, I think, I think it's a four-part series in episode three. I've got, I've got the three episodes uh, digitally to watch them, but I haven't had a chance to sit down with them yet, so I'm not sure. I know in the commercials though, it does look like he sees an animal, so um, I, I would just have to assume that he found the yeti and that all that yeah, scientific material is coming yeah. out soon. So yeah, it's, it's, 
<laughs> Case closed. <laughs> yeah, Our job is done. Yeah, we can go home now. It's a little early. We're we're a half hour short, but insulted. <laughs> 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 As as part of my reviewing for for this uh, program of yours, Blake and Karen, uh, I mean, I, I actually don't think about Yeti all the time in real life. I but so I <laughs> so I went back and okay, now what do I know about Yeti? And back in the 1990s, I did I was asked to be the scientist for a show that was on that splendid example of scientific accuracy the history channel um in the in search of series and uh, with which i'm sure you were all quite familiar this was of course in search of the abominable snowman and uh, they went through all kinds of that uh, kind of bomb fog uh, to get to what was really the kicker which was the last 10 minutes or 15 minutes or so which was their um presentation of new footage of the snow walker Y'all remember the Snowwalker video? Right. Uh, and the Snowwalker video was just just classic. It's just wonderful because it was a mysterious Belgian couple who were, who were camping in the snowy Himalayas. And uh, uh, they were filming, you know, sort of their um, their vacation here. And uh, they they turned the camera back uh, to uh, um, record their their footprints as they had walked up this steep slope. And then they saw this strange creature get up and walk away. And uh, of course, the camera was jiggling and banging around and everything like that. But this was a, and is this the Yeti? And um, I, of course, my whole role, I mean, I, I know you guys have been in a comparable role for other programs. The role of the scientist is to have all the gee whiz stuff go on. And then Dr. Scott is a scientist and somebody really boring. What do you have to say about this? <laughs> <laughs> and, and your job is to say something halfway sensible. There it is. There it is. That's the snow walker. Oh, fabulous. You've got it. I'm more sorry like, for you. Well, that's basically what I said on this program. I said, you know, a, how do you know this couple is Belgian? They're, they're speaking Flemish to each other, but did you actually get a native Flemish speaker? To, I don't know what Flemish sounds like. These people could be, you know, <laughs> saying it. So, you know, linguistics, that's what we need. So a, you know, we, we don't know who these people are. We don't know where this was filmed. It could have been filmed in the Sierras for all we know. It's just a couple of rocks and you know, you've got, there's nothing there. It was very cleverly done so that you couldn't actually figure out where it was. And, then, you know, they, they, they labor up this hill and then they turn around and there's this dark form at the bottom of the hill. And, you know, what's going on in my mind is they're saying, OK, Fred, time to get up and walk. And the guy in the gorilla suit stands up and he starts walking away. And I tell you, if this is actually a creature that lives in this environment, it's going to be dead in a week because it could barely get through the thick snow. It, could, it was extremely clumsy. This was not a creature that was used to this environment. Whereas a man in a gorilla suit would probably not do terribly well in that environment, actually. But um, I did I did bring up a couple of points about how this is not really a very reliable bit of footage. 
But that was that, that must have been the late 90s because I had short hair and really big glasses. So that's kind of what I was, <laughs> that, that's when I can pinpoint that. So the abominable stumbler reminds me of the bumbler uh, <laughs> from uh, the uh, Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer. Is that right? Where, that's it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I, I think Cornelius. Uh, that's right. Yeah. It's in uh, what's the 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 elf that wants to be a dentist? Herb, Herbie. Right. Herbie. So, a dentist. Yeah, uh, so. elf. I think and I think a lot of people learned about the abominable snowman from that documentary. Uh, about the Rudolph the Redness Reindeer. So <laughs> I, I missed this whole thing. How did I how did this pass me by? Right. Oh, give it yeah. a few months like, it'll come out for oh, Christmas. That's a classic. How could yeah. you never have seen that? <laughs> I don't oh, know. You boring scientists. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Case in point. Yeah, okay. my, my daughter probably knows about it. I'll ask her and I'll get all caught up. So, yeah, it, you, you, you'll find it when when Christmas comes around. You'll you'll yeah. find it. It's a it's a, an important part of the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer um, mythology. If if you don't mind me, you know, I'm not I'm not okay. Let's be clear. I, I am a skeptic, but I'm open minded about the existence of Santa Claus. So mm-hmm. that's as like, you should uh, be <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> no spoilers here. I mean, Santa Claus comes to my house every Christmas. I don't know about if, whether you are good girls and boys, but Santa Claus definitely comes to our house. Yeah, I, Santa Claus seems pretty forgiving around here because I've got some bad kids. So, so. <laughs> We've got a 17-month-old, so he'll probably be coming soon. So. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> so I wanted to ask about uh, some of the footprints that have been found in the snow. And uh, I know with Bigfoot, footprints are often uh, a key piece of evidence how would the snow in that particular climate affect those footprints, do you think? Uh, do you think it could affect them in any particular way? Well, in the sense that snow melts and changes its shape pretty well uh, and pretty quickly, I would think that snow prints would be the least reliable kinds of prints that you would want to depend upon. That's a um, recurring thing I've heard as well, is that, that, that they melt and refreeze and melt and refreeze and become unrecognizable bigger and bigger yeah yeah and and they increase in size as well sure uh and their footprints you know do look a lot like people footprints if you kind of forget about the claws in the front which can melt off very easily Uh, the paluxy river man tracks you know we have all sorts of experience with footprints being rather unreliable sources of evidence But that said, are you guys familiar with Jeff Meldrum's uh, 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 or, uh, sorry, Bigfoot footprints? And uh, he claims to have found dermal ridges on them. We are right. We yeah. we've uh, we've talked to um, Jimmy Chilcutt, who was uh, he, he was a, a fingerprint expert. expert who, yeah. yeah, and his, his idea was that these were uh, primate. Uh, uh, dermal ridges, like basically like fingerprints, but Matt Crowley was able to demonstrate that uh, this effect can be created when you have your uh, casting material dry, and he called them um, what did he call them? There's a bit desiccation ridges instead of dermal ridges, um, and, and and so so was able to reproduce the effect. Guaranteed, not a primate because he was just making casts, and they were getting the same sort of effect. So. I think he's pretty well uh, killed that as a viable uh, explanation. So, not that no, Chilcutt is a trained fingerprint expert, but um, that doesn't. And I, he's as much as said that yeah, that does 
does explain the at least potentially explain those. Yeah. Did he also say he? Oh, sorry. Well, I, I was just going to say that I, I think Matt's demonstration about the dermal ridges is pretty definitive uh, and quite interesting. Um, a rare case of truly experimental work in, in uh, skeptical mm -hmm. investigation. Uh, he pretty much put a nail in that wall thing, which was a, a really important cornerstone of the, the pro Bigfoot argument for, for quite a while. It is. Yeah, and it, it's sad, too, because uh, it's the most iconic thing about Bigfoot. I mean, you can have blurry photos all day long, but it's those giant footprints that I think really are, are the most uh, memorable part of my growing up thinking about Bigfoot is people holding up those casts. I was like, you know, so. It's it's one of the important distinctions maybe between uh, the, the Bigfoot lore and the Yeti lore and um, those cookie cutter footprints that we associate with the Sasquatch. Yeah. Uh, it's quite quite different from, from what we see in across historical accounts of, of Yeti tracks. They're really variable. Uh, they don't really, they don't match each other. They don't match uh, the Sasquatch template at all, as we see from the <laughs> shipping print. Um, they don't look like something. They don't look like something that you would strap on your um, your uh, uh, cat uh, caterpillar like <laughs> machinery as you're going through the uh, through the um, California logging board. road. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, the, the Yeti footprint uh, history uh, it implicates wild animals quite. Quite strongly in a range of them, uh, monkeys and, and wolves and uh, uh, bears certainly. Well, we have um, uh, a lack of, of physical evidence to support this animal. Lots of lore, um, but in that sort of highlight time, uh, right before and right around the same time that, that, that Bigfoot became popular in America, we had this this funding that was coming from a private individual. Uh, Tom Slick, which greatest name in, in cryptozoology because I, I, I was a big fan of the uh, Tom Slick cartoons, which is not related. Uh, but And then there's Gray Slick. I, Never mind. <laughs> it's like, that's a singer. I know that. But yeah. <laughs> is she from Starship? Is that right? It's like, I, I yes, forget Jefferson, what. Jefferson Airplane. Okay, um, Jefferson Airplane. Never What's mind. Became? I just I just broke your total train of thought. So get no, no, no. Get, my my train is always precariously <laughs> ready to go off the rails. So don't worry That's about true. that. I, I I simply can't believe that two of the people on this panel don't know that Gray Slick was in Jefferson Airplane. Yeah. So I thought well, she was well, you know, Brian, Brian, yeah, Brian, Brian advantages of being old. <laughs> I, I have students. I have freshmen in my world history class. Never sold Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's scary. Why even be in your class? I don't understand. So, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't believe That's it. That's why they're there. I couldn't believe they didn't they didn't get the reference and, and I just stood there for a minute, dumbfounded. Wow. Not saying anything and and one of the students says, What's wrong? And I said, I was just thinking about the buffalo. <laughs> and they didn't get that either. <laughs> so funny. I have to screen it in class someday. <sighs> okay, so I did get kind of derailed. Uh, I was talking about something with Yetis. I don't know. Oh, Tom Slick. Right. So you had this basically, you had this independent uh, oil millionaire uh, funding. Who may have been working for the CIA. Who may have been working for the CIA. That's a very good point. 
there's a whole there's a whole Yeti CIA thing we haven't even yeah, well, right. There's the, the whole question. Gonna find out about that. Using Yeti research to travel across borders because you know as a cover. spy on the Chinese, right? right. As a cover. <laughs> um. But we don't we don't really have anything like that in cryptozoology anymore. But we do have um, um, Lear uh, sort of funding the same kind of uh, paranormal fringy uh, uh, references. So you've got uh, this guy Lear, who's a millionaire hotel owner from I think uh, Budget Hotels or Budget I forget the name, but uh, but he's uh, the, there was the Skinwalker Ranch research, and at the same time he's legitimately trying to put. Uh, hotel habitats out into space and has a module uh, that's going to be on the, I think it's on the International Space Station right now. I, I find this fascinating when you get these guys who um, are willing to put the money out there and try to do something uh, scientific. I kind of worry that sometimes they go with uh, fringe resources instead of more sort of hardened science resources. Um, but a slick uh, was actually tied into American Bigfoot investigations too until he tragically died in a helicopter crash. Um, does anybody want to share any details? That am, I, am I covering that pretty accurately? Well, he was, uh, he's one of the guys, one of the few people who bridges the gap between both the Asiatic anomalous primate searchers and the North American primate anomalous primate searchers. Uh, he's, he's, was this kind of quirky Texas oil man who is born into a very traditional Republican world that included the Bush family and, uh, and, and other sort of movers and shakers of the American century ideal. Yet at the same time, he's got these sort of almost these progressive, almost liberal ideas about uh, fixing the world not through the force of arms, but through spirituality. And along with the, the Yeti hunts, he also sponsors several sort of holistic institutes. Uh, a very unusual guy. And, and depending upon who you talk to, may have been an operative for the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> you, you wanted to bring the U.S. and the USSR in a kind of world peace police force right uh, yeah very optimistic character yeah. uh what what's what's really fascinating about the yeti hunt much less so uh for the bigfoot stuff but if you look at the history of the people who actually went on these yeti expeditions uh certainly the americans they all have oss connections uh dylan ripley who was uh the the first guy that that Eric Shipton contacts after he gets these pictures. He contacts Dylan Ripley, who's an ornithologist at the Smithsonian, uh, about he knew that that uh, Ripley had gone to Asia and he was an OSS officer in, in the Asia uh, theater. And uh, Carlton Kuhn, another uh, major American member of the, of the Yeti search, also uh, documented... Uh, OSS connections and even later CIA connections because I dug through the Smithsonian records and found he uh, Kuhn had been working for the for U.S. intelligence in North Africa during World War II and he got badly injured uh, in a in a Nazi bombing raid and when the war was over he put in an application for severance pay and um, medical pay and he sort of 
goes back and forth, and this paperwork is there. He goes back and forth with the CIA saying, you know, I, I was working for you guys, and I, I, I my head got smashed open, and now I'm crazy. You got to give me some money. You give me some medical attention. And in wonderfully bureaucratic way, the CIA says, well, you know, you didn't work for the CIA. You worked for OSS. So the CIA is not responsible for what you did under the OSS. Uh, and so they, they wound up giving him some sort of small pension. But all these guys that went on uh, on this expedition hmm. have these very real uh, but somewhat murky intelligence connections. And there are Russian newspaper articles from this time period where they say, we know all these 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 monster guys are all working for the CIA. They're here to spy on us. They're spying on the Chinese. Uh, they're spying on Tibet because this was around the time that that China really began to crack down on Tibet and the Dalai Lama goes into exile. Uh, and they say, you know, you're not fooling us. You're not looking for a monster. You're here to spy on us. So the Yeti is, is uh, the most kind of politicized of, of the cryptids in, in that sense. I mean, you've, you've got this large region of interface between these colonial powers originally and uh, uh, colonial interests. And then eventually these cold war interests, uh, uh, it's yeah, it's complicated. The Chinese eventually kicked all the monster hunters out. They got, got sick of monster hunters watching them into that. I I think the Turks also kicked out all of the Ark hunters. Yeah, <laughs> that's the other Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's uh... <laughs> right. That one's really lost. Yeah. That one's still lost. Still lost. Yeah. So we still have a lot of Bigfoot sightings today, and a lot of people who seem to think Bigfoot is plausible. Uh, and you guys have spoken about the Yeti and how there just aren't sightings today. Do you think that it's possible that the Yeti is an urban legend that's on its way out? Good question. Well, this this goes. Yeah, I mean that's one of that's one of those empirically determinable questions. In that <laughs> there hasn't been a lot of action on the Yeti front, and if there continues to be inaction, then I think we would conclude, yeah. It's uh, it's sort of drifted out of the public conscious. But, you know, all it takes is one more one one exciting find. And people people love to like stuff like this. And uh, it wouldn't take long to put it back on the front page. Yeah, I, I don't think um, since we don't have a body and, and, and we will always probably be getting stories about them. So, you know, if, if they are creatures of folklore, then they'll never die. Uh, <laughs> if, if they're, if they're, if they're purely folklore, they still never die. If they're real animals, we need a body. I, I don't know how else to put it. We need, we need a corpse, um, or a live mm -hmm. one could be a live one, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I just wonder if it could go the way of the, the unicorn and a lot of the other legendary creatures and that people just oh, exist. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, where it basically loses cachet and becomes everybody. Yeah, everyone, knows everyone knows that. Yeah, Although, doesn't exist. as our our special Halloween episode will show, people still believe in fairies, even though you would think that was kind of a dead belief system. So, yeah, yeah, it was surprising. Flat, flat Earth beliefs are, are uh, back. All these things just go in a big wheel. You know, yes. Yeah, they are cyclical. True. It's true. Yep. Yep. But. But yeah, I mean, as as we were talking about earlier, it's um, uh, it's very difficult to tease apart these uh, uh, different levels of folklore. You know, people who are in the countryside in several different countries are dealing with these bears. They have ideas about this. Um, you know, that's one level of folklore. What 
you know, is, is current in the s- cities and townships. It's a different level. What filters out to us in the West is a different level. And um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah, it's hard, hard to know what to make of all that. But I think we do know from studying the folklore that there may have been some uh, event or um, experience that set off a uh, folkloric uh, trope. But um, that doesn't mean that there is a there there, that there is an actual material being. Um, So... Yeah, and then of course, especially with the Yeti, but you know, even with the North American um, uh, wild man of the woods, there's there's supernatural aspects in the minds of some. <clears throat> there are some who look at Bigfoot as a supernatural creature, rather than just an undiscovered uh, relic hominid. That is true. Right, there, there are the well, there, there are the kind of. Uh, uh, the diversity of ideas in the modern Bigfoot, you know, is Bigfoot bulletproof? Is he an animal? Is he mm. from another dimension? Can he read my mind? All those things. Um, but then on the other side of this kind of westernized cryptid, if you go back in time, uh, the source material that contributed to, to modern Sasquatch belief to the, the, the archetype of, of Bigfoot, <laughs> that was also diverse. You know, had, uh, people all over the continent telling wild man stories, and they weren't the same stories. You know, uh, sometimes uh, their wild men had a you know a six foot quartz spike on their big toe, or they lived under water, or these kinds of things. And uh, uh, they have in common this kind of universal motif of the wild man, but otherwise they're not the same. Um, I mean, it's it's not surprising that that is a universal motif. It's, it's the easiest kind of monster to imagine. You know, yes, like one us, like us, but, like us, yeah. but yeah. bigger, wilder, more dangerous. And and mm-hmm. I mean, for most of the people uh, throughout history, as these ideas develop, they are dealing with wild men. Sometimes, you know, they're uh, uh, the other and the tribe next door. They're they're wild. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the bandits in the hills. They're wild. Um, and uh, and as you're navigating a complex world, dangerous world, uh, it's easy to develop mythological motifs around those. And then also you get you get a certain homogenization of the uh, characteristics with popular culture and, and better communication and movies and radio shows. And I mean, even before that, uh, printed newspapers, but especially, especially with um, with the advent of movies and and visual videos, I mean, we all know that you know the, the origin of the almond-eyed uh, uh, um, uh, extraterrestrial, uh, the little green men. I mean, that that's that can be traced back to a very specific incident of popular culture. And you know, Bigfoot's characteristics are are I think replacing. I mean, the, the classic Northwest Coast. Uh, Oregon, Northern California, and Bigfoot characteristics are, I think, replacing the wild man of the woods with the six-foot uh, spike on his toe. You know, there, there's much more um, uh, coming together because of common uh, exposure to the same ideas. And you know, when we it's talk a, about when we talk about um, folklore, we tend to think of it when, uh, when talking about Bigfoot and Yeti about modern folklore. Uh, mm-hmm. But one of the things that brings the yeti to western 
consciousness in the first place is in the late 19th and early 20th century when there was a lot of interest in the West about finding a literal paradise on Earth. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to this special live recording of Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. You heard myself, Blake Smith, and Karen Stolzno interviewing Daniel Loxton, Brian Regal, and Eugenie Scott about the history and science surrounding the Yeti. As I said at the beginning, we lost about six minutes of audio due to technical problems with the Google software. But Brian Regal did talk a bit more about how there was interest in the mystical idea of Shangri-La at the turn of the 20th century. You can learn more about those ideas in Regal's book, Searching for Sasquatch, and in Loxton's book, Abominable Science. Links to works by all our guests will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, and the opinions you hear on this show are those of myself and our guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.